Hello and welcome to Meet My Potential Podcast. This is your host Deepa Natarajan, that Indian girl from Toulouse in France. Today we're going to talk about why simple wins and how can you simplify your organizations with Lisa Bodel. But before we get started, I'd love for you to check out my masterclass on rethink leadership. Why do we need to rethink the way we lead? How can you achieve success and harmony? Exactly, success and harmony and well-being need to go hand in hand this year, and this is so key. And this is exactly why I created this masterclass on how you can make that sustainable change happen to have both success and well-being in your life. So do check that out at www.meetmypotential.com/webinar. That's meetmypotential.com/webinar. All right, let's get started with Lisa Bordel. Lisa Bordel is the founder and CEO of FutureThink. She is the best-selling author of Kill the Company and her latest book Why Simple Wins. She is recognized as a global leader on innovation and change management. She's been a keynote speaker at Gartner and she's worked with various companies like Google, Cisco, Citigroup, Fidelity, Accenture, the US Navy and Novartis here in Europe. She is someone who's very laser focused and she provides radical thinking on the spot, helping people to make things simple, become more productive and do more meaningful work. She's been featured on New York Times, on Fox News, on CNN, in Harvard Business Review, and she's also a member of the Global Agenda Council for the World Economic Forum and an advisor on the Board of Association of Professional Futurists and Novartis Diversity and Inclusion Board in Basel, Switzerland. So, let's welcome Lisa Bordel. Hello and welcome Lisa to the show. How are you doing this morning? Very well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming over. You're the author of the book Kill the Company and Why Simple Wins. Mm-hmm. Our human brain needs simple answers every single day. We're looking for simplicity and yet we make things complex at work. Why do we do that? That's a great question. I think that we we create complexity with the best of intentions, meaning we're trying to solve a problem, we're just we're adding something on top of what already exists rather than starting over in the interest of time. So it's, it's done with the best of intentions. But I, I think the result of it is that we create the beast that we become a slave to. And if we would spend more time stopping and getting rid of unnecessary things in the long run, that would actually eliminate a lot of complexity that slows us down every day. You've done so much work in bringing simplicity to many organizations like Google, Novartis, and many others. What's been the single biggest motivation factor for bringing simplification? The the goal with simplification is to do more meaningful work or to get to the work that matters. Too many of us are drowning in unnecessary or mundane work that we were not hired to do in the first place. Like when I ask people, what do they spend their day doing? They don't say, you know, curing cancer and, you know, creating rockets that are going to go to Mars. They say meetings and emails. And I don't know a single person that was hired for their amazing meeting and email ability. So we're spending (laughs) our time on, on tasks that just aren't, you know, sometimes they facilitate meaningful work, but I, I can't think of a single person that says every meeting, every email, every process, every report they do is meaningful driving value. So the goal of simplicity is to get to the work that really matters and do what you were 
hired to do in the first place. That is so true. And yet from a very innocent perspective, I want to answer yes for that. That is so true. And yet, how are we perceived when we don't answer emails? It's a social conditioning. It's like, oh, that person yeah. is so unreliable. That person is so undependable. He doesn't answer to my emails. Oh, he's stonewalling me. Yeah. Uh, we make so many assumptions of people and maybe he's doing some, he or she's doing some amazing, meaningful work behind, but we make so many assumptions behind that. So there's a kind of a social pressure in terms of a culture of email. There is a culture of email um, because we view that, you know, what we send out is very important. It's the other people's stuff that's unimportant. So we also have to monitor our own behaviors and really wonder, you know, how are we communicating? What kind of urgency are we requesting? You know, what is the hierarchy in terms of what's most important and least important? Because we're all what we do value at the end of the day is getting stuff done. And so people not responding is holding you up from not getting stuff done. And what they don't realize is, is maybe that person's being asked to get a lot of stuff done. And it might not all be meaningful. So we all have to check our behaviors and really question uh, the urgency that we ask for, the tasks that we're demanding that might just be uh, giving us comfort or calming down fear or eliminating risk versus really doing things of value. So much of complexity is driven by fear. And if we can start to acknowledge those behaviors that really create complexity, we would see that a lot of our behaviors are driven by fear and wanting power and control that we just feel we don't have. That is so true. Because as soon as you want to make things simple in an organization, there'll be a lot of resistance to that kind of change. Uh -huh. What have you experienced? Well, we do this really interesting thing called kill a stupid rule. And it's a really, really great exercise because it allows people to question the assumptions around how they work. And everyone likes it in theory because they think everyone else is the problem. But the minute that you question, <laughs> you know, if you question how I work, you're questioning my, my intelligence, my capabilities, my priorities. So it's a very ego-driven thing. And so a lot of the resistance to change is that people fear change, right? It's, very, it's much more easy to be comfortable than uncomfortable. Um, there's trust, right? People don't like to try new things that they feel like they're going to be punished. Um, there's risk aversion. That's another thing that kind of comes into play. Um, most people have been taught not to take a risk rather than taking a risk, right? There's punishment that comes with bad risk taking. And so that's why we follow the status quo. No one gets punished for the status quo. It's the people that, you know, if you stick your neck out, it might get chopped off. And that's why most people will resist it. That, the other thing about that is then change isn't going to happen unless the leaders give permission to make those changes. And when we do kill a stupid rule, that's a great way to show leaders that actually there's a lot of unnecessary rules, even assumptions, that bog us down every day. And the trick is to all agree on which rules to get rid of. And the other trick is for the leader to realize some of the rules they create are the ones that are creating complexity in the first place. Wow. You just gave something very, very important here. And I just want to rewind back a little bit because it's not easy. Kill a stupid rule, like you said, it's so easy to kill a stupid rule of another department uh -huh. uh, to make things easy for you. But it's so hard to kill a stupid rule that you are operating on and that one is operating on. And so well, that it, is hard because like for years I've been like people identify themselves with the tasks they do. That's right. That's what we, we identify. We think what we do is who we are. Mm. <laughs> and so it's not about, you know, actions. It's about results. And if we can change the actions, we might still get the same or better results. 
I think one of the things we have to do when we talk about killing rules is not it's not killing you or questioning your stupidity. Some rules were good at the time, but many of them have outlived their time. So how you position getting rid of something could be just as important as the action of getting rid of it itself. And in some instances, uh, especially in cultures that are driven by fear, it might be even the most important to make it happen. Hmm. So how do you actually operate when you walk into an organization? What does that actually look like? I think, well, first of all, we talk to the leaders in advance that, you know, why do they need us there? And we try to parse out, you know, where is the complexity happening? Not just where in the organization, but what level of person, you know, in the hierarchy? Is it um, that people don't feel they have permission and therefore we need the leaders to better demonstrate the behaviors that create simplicity? Or is it the leaders that are the problem? And we need to actually show them that it's not a threat or they don't need to be so fearful or risk averse if we actually do get some of the complexity that they just hold so dear. You know, complexity creates a lot of emotional safety because it allows people to hide. And when you get rid of complexity, there's nowhere to hide. That's part of the beauty and the problem with it. So <laughs> we need to get actually people comfortable with the change first and then decide the best way to approach it. It could be killing rules. That's low hanging fruit. But the way to make it mm-hmm. stick is changing behaviors. So, you know, being able to say no to the Monday status meeting is a tactic. Being able yeah. to say no to any meeting you don't feel is worthy, that's a behavior. And so we need to p- shift people from tactical to behavioral. Right. Right. I hear you. You know, it's, it's so great to actually have these brainstorming sessions and decide which rules do we uh, kill and w- what m- what kind of a manual can we have that we operate on, in fact, to make it simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But once you make that decision, enrolling and putting that in place, that could there could be resistance to change for that. How do you, what challenges do you see in putting that in place? Well, the way that we help people overcome their resistance to change is we have them start in small, small ways. Like, let's take the kill a stupid rule example again. If you want to have people kill rules, one thing you can say is just pilot getting rid of something. And if no one misses it after a month or whenever it is, then you can finalize getting rid of it for good. And what that does is that helps leaders feel more comfortable with eliminating something. Because eliminating to a lot of people is a loss, right? Not an improvement. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we don't make it so black and white, like you must get rid of this forever into mm-hmm. perpetuity, um, that helps and soften the blow and gets people more comfortable with change. Because really that's what it comes down to is questioning how we work. People don't like to be questioned and uh, better dealing with change. And people don't like change. So positioning it is just as important as doing it. Right. Because when you actually kill uh, complexity and you bring in simple ways and you start doing meaningful work, it suddenly liberates a whole lot of time. And I remember I was working with one organization and I pointed out to this manager that there are issues in the team and he really needs to build a cohesive team, his first level managers. And he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to bring his team together because it was much easier for him to actually manage the conflicts between his team members and spend time there than actually creating a sense of cohesion and liberating a time for himself. So mm-hmm. he was actually justifying his time in resolving, working with people on a one-to-one basis rather than creating a, a team <laughs> dynamics. <laughs> it, this reminds me of a story, actually. I was talking with um, uh, oh, Voss is the CEO of Novartis. And yes. we were... 
and we were talking about um, this whole concept that people really value activity rather than outcome. And the reason we know that is because when you ask someone how they're doing or how they value themselves, it's how busy they are. Busy, mm -hmm. right? Very busy. Yeah. But everyone says they crave less busy time and more time for thinking. But the minute we see someone just sitting and thinking, <laughs> we're like, well, you know, get back to work. You're lazy, right? We value doing, not thinking. So we were talking about this whole thing about being unbusy. And I think what's going to be interesting about that is not just, um, you know, getting people less busy, but then how they feel when they are less busy. And I'll, I'll tell you this quick story, if that's okay. There was a of course. Yeah. There was a guy who headed up risk at Standard & Poor's and, uh, you know, which is obviously one of the most important areas within that business, within financial ratings. And I was doing some work on simplicity and innovation with him. And I, he said one of his biggest issues is decision making. It's way too complex. People will not make decisions, even though they say they want to. And um, they don't realize that they're their own worst enemy. And I said, well, how did you fix that? He said, you know, what was interesting is I had to mandate it. I was, what do you mean? He said, well, I had to change behavior, not just tactics. So I got my team into a room. And we had these monthly status meetings. He had 10 people on his team. And he said, at one status meeting, he said, listen, the next time we get together, the next month, I want each of you to make two decisions without me that you normally would have brought me in for. Mm -hmm. People were excited, but quickly became concerned. And they you know, their fear kicked in. What kind of decisions? How many decisions? Do I have to get you approval first on the decisions? I'm not going to have you make decisions. He said, God, just make, just make some decisions without me. <laughs> and within the first week, you know, everyone was still emailing him. You sure it's okay not to invite this person to this meeting? And he said, just, just do it. There's no penalty here. So at the next month, you know, people were excited reporting in the two decisions they made. That's 20 less decisions for him. 10 people, two decisions. The next month, he upped it to three decisions. So the next month, four. And I said, how did you know when it was working? And he said, it's funny. I thought it would be some kind of metric, right? You know, X number of decisions made without me. He said, mm -hmm. it's when I realized I was so uncomfortable because I had so much extra time on my hands. And he said, you know, with so much, I was saying to my people that they were valuing being busy. And he realized, he said, I valued being busy. He said, finally, I had that time on my hands because I wasn't, wasting it, feeling important, making decisions for people. He said, I didn't know what meaningful work was and what to do with my less busy time. So there's lots of interesting implications of simplifying, um, but we really have to be prepared for it too. We're so busy valuing busy that when we're not busy and actually given the chance to do valuable things, do we know what we would do? And that's something interesting mm -hmm. for us to each ask ourselves. That's a great question. Busy has become a new viral disease. <laughs> it is. It is a disease. I, it's funny. When we were writing my book, we, were, we had a whole theme for a while that was like viruses and things like diseases. <laughs> and we, we decided to just get away from that. It became too serious. But it is like that, right? You think about a virus like, oh, it's so insidious and the you know, complexity is a virus. It's hard to get rid of. We need like somebody give us a good, uh, a, a good way to inoculate ourselves. A good antidote to yes. uh, feeling good about <laughs> ourselves by not being busy. Yep. But uh, the thing is like, how do I value myself, right? It all comes down to that. I value myself when I do something, when I get something done. But if you look at it five years down the line and you go like, oh my God, what was I doing there in that meeting? Why was I controlling everything? And uh, what was the point of that? Me being so busy? Because like when I get unbusy, 
I have time and I have time to think and yeah. I have time to do strategy, to take care of strategy because otherwise that's just completely gone. Well, not many people are, you know, comfortable with thinking and being alone with your thoughts can be a very scary thing to some people. But I, I do think this whole thing around busy is interesting because it's, you know, when you ask people how do success, very successful people um, get ahead, it's because their ability to focus. And the problem with people that aren't successful is they're really good at what they say is called majoring and minor things. So mm -hmm. they're very good at running the best meetings, you know, getting stuff done, checking off their to-do list. But at the end of the day, you're not promoted by how many checks are on your to-do list. So we have to rethink what we're valuing and how we work. So what are some of the side effects of bringing simplification in organizations? So, well, there's, there's no bad side effects to simplifying, in my opinion. Right. So, you know, that it's knowing how to identify it, first of all, um, and not trying to overdo it. There's, there's a few things to be cautious of, and then I'll tell you the benefits or the quote, side effects of it. Um, yes. You know, I, I don't have anyone that comes to me and says, we're fine. We don't have any complexity here. I, mean, that, I don't think that organization exists. So that's a, that's good. That's good news for me. Um, but the good news is there's a lot of easy things people can do to get rid of complexity because we create it, mm -hmm. right? A lot of it is self-imposed and unnecessary. We can pretty easily tell where there's a lot of waste. You know, if you call it time sucks, people know how to quickly tell right. you what's sucking up their time. You know, who else is sucking up their time and doing something wrong to them? Um, the thing about it is, is that, you know, complexity is like the evil twin, right, of simplicity. It takes you away from things that matter. The the problem of having complexity is that it's not just that it wastes time and money, but it really is a cultural and ethical issue. It's cultural because, you know, culture is the work we do every day. And if the work you do every day is meetings and emails, that's your culture. And that is not inspiring, you will lose people. It's also ethical. So the problem with not having simplicity is that um, you think it's okay to waste people's time. And time is a non-renewable resource. You'll never get it back. So those are the, those are the kind of issues with simplicity. The positive side uh, of what happens when you simplify is that everything becomes um, more transparent. There's nowhere to hide. And so really the good people rise to the top. And those who are either not good at their jobs or have less valiant behaviors at work, um, they will be exposed because they won't be hoarding information anymore. They won't be making things complex for their own egos. And um, if they're not skilled at their job, they'll be found out pretty quickly. And that's okay because those are the people that are causing the problems and we need to get rid of that quickly. Wow. So, com uh, so simplicity brings transparency. Absolutely. It takes away, it takes away organizational politics. It can. Yeah, it, it won't completely eliminate them because I, I don't think we can cure human behavior, but no. I, I think we can change <laughs> but to it. A, but to a good degree, it can take that away because then the meetings would actually get efficient where people start making decisions in meetings and the conversations would be much more meaningful rather than hiding behind uh, tasks, hiding behind overkill and, you know, so many governance and policies that people hide behind and regulations. Now, Having said that, governing policies and regulations, like, do you find that there are certain sectors, like if you go into aviation sector or if you go into like a nuclear power plant, because I know you were, you worked in the U.S. Army, right? If I get that, if I got that right. So yeah. are there certain places where um, it's hard to bring in simplicity? Uh, there are places, that the answer to that is everywhere. 
can have simplicity no matter how regulated it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so government obviously is high end on the scale of regulation, but so is pharma, so is bank. But there are always departments within government that are less complex than others. There are always um, companies within regulated industries that seem to operate with simplicity while others can't, and they all have the same level of regulation. So there's something culturally that's holding us back. The issue is that people use regulation, especially mm-hmm. in governments, as the excuse to be complex. Now, to some degree, that's very true. I mean, let's be honest. If you're regulated, you've yeah. got more to deal with. There's just no, no denying the external pressures. The problem becomes when you really look at simplicity, this is the problem in good news, it, it's not just the regulation and it's not just the organizational complexity that we create to deal with it. It's the tactical and behavioral complexity. So most things that bog people down every day aren't external regulations. I mean, unless you're in the mm-hmm. regulatory group. Um, they're, you know, you ask people what, what wastes their time. It's meetings and emails. And those things aren't, you know, you're not going to six sigma those things and you're not going to, you know, regulate that. You're, you're going to try. But these are things that are within our sphere of control. You know, the mm. sphere of influence is organizational and regulatory. Sphere of control are things like tactics and behaviors that we within our own teams can agree to change. And so that, that's the good news. We have to stop thinking of it as, well, I'm in the government. It's always going to be complex. That's just not true. You can get rid of some things. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. All of us have, you know, even in our house, even in everything, in every operate, in every place where we operate, there are lots of places for simplif- simplification and making things simple and making life easy and doing the most meaningful thing that's needed. We've yeah. seen that with COVID, like we've, you know, people have very quickly adopted. Like we said, no, we can't do this face. We have to do this face to face. This can't happen Amazing. offline. But yeah. since COVID happened and then look, everybody is just functioning and, you know, with some basic things and most people are actually getting most stuff done. Never, ne- never let a crisis go to waste. Yeah. It's amazing. So what you see now is that people are embracing change more because of a burning platform. Like COVID is the burning platform. But the good organizations are the ones that already had these cultures that embrace change and questioned assumptions, regardless of COVID. So the people that you can see pivot hard right now are the ones that already yeah. had cultures that embrace this kind of not just simplicity, but change, right? They, they embrace agility. They are allow people to question the assumptions around how they work. That's what simplification is, questioning mm. the assumptions around how you work. Because when you question the assumptions, you don't just change the tactics, but you change the behaviors. How do you, have you ever introduced artificially disruption in organization? Uh, Have I ever introduced disruption? Yes. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) we do. So, I mean, I think a lot of people don't have it. They don't know how to do it. And so what we do is we give them some really interesting examples, tactics, and tools for how they can get that done. So, for example, a a very disruptive thing is to question the assumptions around how you work. Um, And some are small disruptions, some are big. And so the tool we use is called assumption reversal. And what assumption reversal does is it allows you to, first of all, take a problem and break it into parts. Part of the problem with problems is that we feel they're too big to tackle because we look at them as a single problem versus a series of parts and steps that we can change independently um, or or isolate them. And so we take even things like, let's use a silly example, like Mm -hmm. a, a weekly status meeting right? We, it sucks. Let's change it. If we can change a weekly status meeting, we can get comfortable changing our drug development program. I don't know. And so we tell people to tell us what's wrong with meetings and don't just say, well, they're unproductive. Let's break down meetings into parts and question the assumptions around the parts. Well, they're weekly. Uh, you have to be invited. There's an agenda. 
for 30 minutes. They're on Zoom. Uh, they have the same categories every week. You get the idea. And so we take each of those parts and we reverse the assumptions around them. So it's not that um, they meet weekly or not weekly. The, you know, it's not the reverse of something isn't the opposite. It's the alternative. Maybe it's uh, not weekly. It's daily, but for only five minutes. Maybe it's monthly. Maybe it's annually. Maybe it's ad hoc. And when you reverse all of the assumptions, you start to see the alternative ways that you could tackle weekly meetings and make them better. And um, we actually had an instance where like HBO, they said, well, let's reverse the assumptions around this meeting. And it was a really great thing for them to do because they saw how they could apply it to other parts of their business. They decided that they didn't have to be weekly. They could be monthly. Um, there didn't have to be an agenda. Anybody could bring up the hottest topics, right? So people would focus more on not what they should say, but what's top of mind. And um, anybody could attend. And what was interesting about that was is that people then could decide whether it was worth their time or not. And it forced the person organizing the meeting to make it worth people's time. So there's, there's lots of ways that you can change small things just by reversing your assumptions around how they have to work. Fabulous. For listeners who are listening out there, yes, there is a way to reduce the number of meetings that you're having. And yes, there's a way for you to actually do meaningful work and be productive by reducing unnecessary, wasteful time where you spend your time and energy. And this also, I'm imagining, Lisa, you bring well-being into work automatically. I do. Yeah, what the idea around well-being isn't just, you know, part of health is how you spend your time. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, I mean, the reason a lot of us don't have well-being is because we don't have the time for it. Exactly. And so sim simplicity helps well-being. And the well-being is that I get to spend time on things that matter to me and that are valuable, and therefore I get to value myself. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Lisa. And I'm very curious to know, like with simplicity, I can see so many benefits, so many benefits. And this is fantastic, fabulous work that you do. And yet I'm wondering, how is it for leaders who value status, uh, who value the number of layers that are there below them, um, like the, you know, how big my signature is and being unbusy, being available, removing those layers of complexity, What's one tip to actually help um, those leaders to embrace simplification? What would be your one tip for them? Um, figure out what your biggest time sucks are. And I would, I always do something called an audit. And what I mean by this is, so we had people literally um, audit all the meetings they have. They, people would say meetings, meetings are the problem. So, okay, write down all the meetings that you guys have as a team on an ongoing basis, weekly, monthly, ad hoc, annually, quarterly. And then you have to be extreme and you tell people, if you have to get rid of half of these, which ones would you eliminate? And of course, what happens is we, we have people, um, they object, right? Oh, we can't eliminate half of these because they realize their, their resistance to change. But what it really does is in the process, it allows you to question the value of where you're spending your time. And in the end, you're not going to kill 50% of your meetings, but you'll kill 20%. And what that does is that gets you an hour or two back a week for more meaningful work. And think about that. If you did that across an entire organization and move the needle by like 1% of less meetings, <laughs> that would have a huge impact. So, and that's something stupid. That's just auditing your meetings. Imagine if you audited committees that no longer serve a purpose or audited reports that are redundant and no longer needed. You could really tackle unnecessary work. 
Wow. Wow. So much, uh, so much complexity we have created over years in an organization. The bigger the organization, I'm imagining, the bigger the levels of complexity. Smaller organizations are faster, is what I see. Uh, and yet, uh, I believe that there could be lots of simplification that could be done in every area of life for everybody. Mm -hmm. I agree. Definitely. The good news is, is that a lot of these things are self-imposed and unnecessary. And we have a lot of things in our sphere of control that we have control getting rid of. Exactly. So what are like top three behaviors, like in your experience of having implemented simplicity in so many organizations across the globe, what are the top three behaviors you've seen that are like primary, primary and key for actually this to actually unfold and be effective? Um, gosh, just three, huh? Uh, I think that we have to give people the permission to question how we work. We have to give people the permission to say no, right? that they, they are allowed to decide how they spend their time, what's worthy. And I think that we have to streamline decision-making, which means um, get people more comfortable with taking a risk. And there's too much multi-layered decision-making. And if we can shorten that or eliminate a lot of it or give people more empowerment, we get a lot of time back. Fantastic. That is fabulous. Those three are key because we very quickly jump to answers and asking questions triggers curiosity. Asking questions is so key to, as you just rightly said before, like we need to question our assumptions. So uh -huh. the more we ask questions, the more we actually question our assumptions and the more we can actually start think and reflect and say what we need to eliminate. Fantastic. And of course we need to start saying no, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sometimes we just think that we can't say no and we just need to follow the process and follow the system and we just become like sheeps. Exactly. <laughs> we need one person to be a change agent, <laughs> one person to say no and make completely. that make that difference and the whole organization and a lot of people will start to follow you. <laughs> I know completely. Thank you so much, uh, Lisa, for being here. And before we close this episode, would you like to share one last message for the audience? Yeah, I think that the good news here is that there are a lot of easy, simple things you can do to get time back um, for more valuable work. And you deserve to do that. You were hired or, you know, put here to do very meaningful, valuable things. And how you spend your time is a reflection of the meaningful work you do. So I, I will say, if you really want to think about and empower yourself about what you're doing, you know, tell me what you say yes to, and I'll tell you who you are. And if you are saying yes to things that aren't valuable, that's who you are. If you are saying yes to things that are really valuable to you intrinsically, you're in the right direction. That's who you are. And I think that allows people to be a little bit more empowered and feel less powerless over how they spend their life and time. Beautiful. I'll keep that with me as I walk into this Christmas break. I'll ask myself this question, what am I saying yes to? And for listeners listening out there, this is an evergreen question. Ask yourself every single day, what am I saying yes to today? Who am I saying yes to today? Are you saying yes to yourself? Are you saying yes to your meaningful purpose and how you want to live and thrive in 2021? Thank you so much, Lisa, for being here with us. And how can people find you? You can go to futurethink.com. Please visit us there or find me on LinkedIn, Lisa Bodell. Uh, I'd be happy to connect and share more. You can 
personally on LinkedIn. And if you go to the website, actually, there's a place for free resources. And I hope that they'll take advantage of it so they can start finding their own ways to simplify and to innovate. Thank you so much. We'll put the links in the show notes. So don't forget to head over to meetmypotential.com slash podcast and look for show notes for this episode. Thank you, Lisa, for being here. And for all the listeners out there, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you again in one week's time. And until then, stay cool. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you.